from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey hosting today with my longtime collaborators, friends, fellow colleagues at Wharton, Eric Bradlow and Audie Weiner. Shane Jensen is out doing Shane Jensen things. He'll be back. Some combination of us are here every week, and we're glad you're here to join us. Eric, Adi, good afternoon to you. We're recording on Tuesday afternoon. How are things going in your world? Going well. Very, very well. Very well. well. Yeah. So Adi is uh, cruising around somewhere between where he was and home and has a number of COVID-related stuff items that he wants to go through. This world is not not exactly moving on, is it? No, it's not. I mean, so actually, so there's a bunch of things. I thought I would group them. I thought we'd start talking about treatments. Um, and I think that's apropos considering we are definitely in an extremely contagious and rapidly spreading period. Um, we talked about it last week and uh, and there's lots of there's reinfections, but I, and, and we have some data on on the kinds of people who get infected this time. I'll save that. But there's three treatments that are in the pipe for this. Um, Paxlovid seems to be everywhere, by the way. So I have friends who are not in any, in any serious risk profile, and they're getting positive, and they're either taking Paxlovid or they're, they're being offered it. Um, so there's, there's a glut. The market has plenty of it, and um, it does seem to work. It even seems to have benefit for people who are vaccinated. So that's the kind of thing that wasn't tested in the original cl- clinical trial. Um, as opposed to some of the other drugs um, that don't really seem to have much benefit, uh, but Paxlovid really does seem to. What one I, one what I also uh, read, yeah, yeah, what I also read about Paxlovid, though, I'm sure you saw this uh, similar article as I did, Adi, is that it's about eight. I've seen numbers between 86 to 90 percent effective against preventing hospitalization, but I've also seen an article that says some people are symptomatic again after the course, but it's still effective against hospitalization. So it's interesting. You may get the symptoms again, but it's going to prevent the severe illness, which I thought was really fascinating. So one of the problems with all this, of course, is that we only have one clinical trial of Paxlovid, which was very effective and it had about a 90% effectiveness, but the world has moved on since then. So you got to figure out, are we looking at the same kind of population in the clinical trial? They observed that, but here's the kicker. They observed it in the control group too. <laughs> People finished with their placebo and they got back and they had a recurrence of symptoms. And so in the clinical trial itself, that difference wasn't significant, but lots of people are reporting it anecdotally that they take the Paxlovid, they get better, they finish the Paxlovid and they get symptoms again, but it doesn't result in any serious concern. But I do think Paxlovid is effective. The complication is that it doesn't, it's not for everyone because it conflicts with lots of drugs that people would take, particularly a, a lot of common illnesses, uh, and you can't take Paxlovid. It also like, what's an example, Adi? Um, I think well, any kind of immunosuppressant. People who have serious oh. diseases, yeah. Well, let me ask you then a question, Adi. Is its effectiveness overstated because it's being used for people that aren't immunocompromised? And so it's not. It's just the population. It's not being overstated, but you have to look carefully because it's a success rate for people that don't have certain comorbidities, as an example. Yeah, I mean, that's always a problem in external validity, I guess we call this in statistics. You you have a trial on a certain type of people, and then you don't know whether that really is going to extend to you individually. 
I don't, I'd have to ask a doctor um, how, how, what's, and I'd have to read the details of the original Paxlovid study. Um, but I don't think we're seeing the original, the, the same incredible high levels of protection, particularly once you're vaccinated. Um, that already gives you a lot of protection against um, serious illness, and you're just getting a, an extra benefit. I don't think it's 90% on top of the vaccination level. Bottom line is, if you get COVID, uh, um, even if you're older, even if you do have some potential health issues, if you can take Paxlovid, it's really a very, very rare event that that hospitalization is going to emerge. So that's. So let me ask. Let me just do a little math here, Adi, and you tell me if this envelope math is wrong. Let's imagine the probability of getting a severe case of COVID, even if let's say for the moment that you're unvaccinated and mm-hmm. you get COVID. Let's say the probability is I'm making it. Let's say it's two percent. Okay. Mm-hmm. Let's now say that you're vaccinated and boosted. So let's say I cut that by 90%, right? It's 90%. Yep. Yep. Then now if I get, now I'm vaccinated, let's say, and I get COVID and I notice it and I start taking Paxlovid, can I just multiply all these numbers together and end up with a marginal probability that's going to be some extremely low number because I've got the probability of getting it, then I've got the vaccination protection, and then I've got the conditional protection given vaccination? Well, okay. So I would say in some sense, I think we have enough data to say yes, although I don't think it's, it goes from 0.2 down to 0.02. I think it probably goes down to from 0.2 more like to 0.1. Um, and that's probably because of the, the different groups. But sure, because they, I mean, they looked at this. I mean, looked at vaccinated people who had COVID. So I would argue that potentially it does. But you know what? That's not the same thing as reality. So um, and there, and reality has this way of throwing you a curveball. But in any event, that's a pretty low number, and that's and that's for if you started with with two percent, you're looking at that's rates for for pretty that's pretty much older than us. So so that's like seventy year olds and seventy five year olds. Um, so it's a pretty a bad outcome from COVID is very very rare at this point for vaccinated, boosted, and certainly with people with Paxlovid, extremely rare. I think that corresponds to most of our experiences, particularly for those people under 70, under 65. So the Adi, stay, yeah. stay, real quickly, give us that observation about the 70s, 60s, and 50s, just to, get, just to remind us of how steep that curve is. Yeah, it's, that, it's, 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 it's a lot. So it goes by about a factor of 10 from 70s to 50s. It's extremely, and another factor. Say a factor. You're talking about risk of hospitalization. Uh, Well, I mean, it's hard to know mortality, hospitalizations. Put it this way: once you're under forty, the counts are so low that it's hard to make discerning distinctions between treatment levels because there's so few individuals who end up hospitalizing for COVID under forty that you don't even know what the numbers are. They're they're so rare. So, Adi, when I saw these numbers recently, I was reminded of these numbers. They take on new meaning in today when so many behaviors have gone back to normal. Yeah. And so I've got in-laws who are 70 years old and, you know, I'm doing my normal thing with them. And I'm, I'm just like, I'm not worried about me too much, but should I be worried about those guys? Should I be counseling them to, well, maybe you shouldn't, you know, go back to normal. Maybe you should still be honoring some restrictions when you're in that riskier group. Well, I mean, I think it potentially, okay, so listen, we all have anecdotal stories of, I just heard one earlier from, from my wife's uh, uh, mother, my mother-in-law, uh, one of their friends from their community who was in their mid to late 70s, otherwise healthy, caught COVID and, and died. I don't know what their vaccination status, I don't know how they were treated, I don't have any detail. 
But this is still happening. There's still thousands of deaths a day from COVID. So one argument you could make is that if you are in that age group, remember, you don't have that much time to live and you want to live it well. So you have to be careful that you don't you know, throw out the baby with the so-called bathwater. Um, but I would argue that at times of enormous infection, which shouldn't last that long, those are the times where you should be taking extra precautions. And then when we're, so we're in long, that we're in that one of those times right now. Definitely. Absolutely, absolutely in it. And that is just un, unquestionable. We are in it. So the other thing I wanted to talk about, which just came down, the FDA denied approval for fluoxamine, which is a study we've ta- a drug we've talked about repeatedly on our show. It's been studied a number of times. The results are pretty good. Depending on the type of person, it looks like anywhere between 30 to 90 percent um, extra reduction. This is generally not on hospitalized, I mean, on vaccinated people. Maybe they have a new study on vaccinated. But the FDA, FDA said no to emergency use. That doesn't mean that a doctor can't prescribe it because it is a, a drug that a doctor can prescribe for antidepression. And they can, of course, then do it off label. But specifically for if you want to, it's basically not recommended by the FDA. Um, is that for, because Paxlovid is more recommended or because that's no, what I'm... It, I couldn't understand their, their, their reasoning. And I think, I mean, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal today by, uh, that tried to explain it. I could not get it, particularly considering how glib they are at propon- at proposing, um, treatments like vaccines for younger people and boosters where they have no good data. At least there's actual, actual, uh, r- randomized placebo controlled trials that show that it works. There is nothing that shows that a third or fourth booster uh, works for under 18. Um, and by the way, the, the, it's coming to a head. Is fluoxamine given at the same time period as Paxlovid? Because I'm just wondering, maybe it's yes, like it would be given it at is. the same time. It would, so yeah, right. you wouldn't take both and you wouldn't go like, I'm going to go Paxlovid first and then fluoxamine. You would not well, so that. fluoxamine was a good idea when there was nothing else. We knew about fluoxamine before we had vaccines. Um, right. And uh, and 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 in fact, my, I'm I'm in my sister's house right now uh, doing this recording. She got fluoxamine, and as a, in a randomized controlled clinical trial, she may have got the placebo. In fact, um, this was before vaccine. She had COVID, and uh, there was a, a trial. Um, I found out about it from a colleague at Johns Hopkins. It was a mail-in trial. You just registered. They FedExed it to you, and you got one or the other. She had COVID. She re- she recovered. Um, but but there's oh, by the way, there's a, a number of anecdotal studies looking at people uh, who got fluoxamine and it looks really as a really good treatment and considering it has essentially no side effects, a well-studied, well-prescribed drug and well-tolerated. Um, I'm not sure why someone would want uh, fluoxamine. Why, why would someone would, would prefer Paxlovid over fluoxamine when you're not in a high risk group? I would sooner take fluoxamine than Paxlovid personally um, if, I, if I were to take anything. So I, I'm I'm baffled by it, and maybe we can get someone an expert to sort of take us through the FDA's reading reasoning and how they're comparing the decision to say na 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 to fluoxamine and sure to all these other things which don't seem to have much much clinical um, proven benefit. Isn't the, isn't though even just even based on what you said, Adi, isn't Paxlovid kind of known to be eighty plus percent effective? And you mentioned a very wide interval for fluoxamine. Couldn't that be the rationale? Well, you know. Fluoxamine, I mean, the problem is Paxlovid had one clinical trial. So, you know, I mean, Fluoxamine has had five and all of them have been effective, but for various different effect sizes. So this is interesting. You're a Bayesian. What would you do with that? Right. You got five trials with lots of variation in the effect size versus one one trial with with one good, very good result. Fluoxamine has had a good result of that size, but so had a bunch of others of smaller effect size. 
I'm inclined to shrink towards the mean here, not, you know, not just use the, the maximum likelihood point estimate. And I don't know what I don't know what the thinking is. I mean, this would be something an interesting thing to get an expert on to kind of take us through what the FDA make its decisions on. So there you have it. Fluoxamine is still prescribable, but it's not it did not get emergency use authorization. Is one way of describing what's going on there in, in the study results, at least in some people's interpretation of them, is that their the confidence in the result is going the, the variance in the, their understanding is getting broader, despite having multiple studies, which usually reduces our uncertainty because the results vary some, it actually is increasing their uncertainty. The, the, so, Kadrid, by the way, you're just talking about a paper that I, I'm working on right now, which is okay. most people, no, 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 most people make an assumption. I call it negative information. It was actually one of the first papers I ever wrote as an academic where you collect more information and the posterior variance goes up, not down. It's mm-hmm. a known phenomenon, but not that well-known phenomenon. And you're exactly talking about that. If you mm-hmm. get an observation, let's say I'll use Adi's words, a new study that's discrepant from the initial one, that's when you can get an increase in variance. Mm-hmm. And so that's exactly, matter of fact, Adi, we may find out, Adi, if they run another study, they probably don't want to run another study for Paxlovid, because if they do, what they could end up finding is it's worse, and they end up with a larger variance estimate, which is actually reflecting the truth. Yeah, interesting. So the the other topic I wanted to bring down is the and uh, and Eric, I know you were interested in the same thing. Is there's a nice um, chart and a study that kind of tries to talk about infection rate. So this is not serious illness protection, just pre- infection rate in in this particularly in this latest round. And as you might guess, um, the, at the bottom is unvaccinated. And then and but very interestingly about it is one or two doses doesn't offer much protection at all. We kind of know that. Most people realize that one or two doses offers basically nothing. Three doses, if you haven't gotten prior infection, offers also very little. So and this is, we also know this, many of us who had, who had the original two shots and a booster that didn't stop us from getting, it, getting COVID, uh, many, and th- that's widespread. But here's where things get interesting. Um, a, a, a sorry, and a natural infection, so having had it before is better than having vac- being vaccinated and not having it before uh, in the long run. It, it, it seems to last okay. And then what's best of all, of course, is three shots and having an infection. That seems to provide about 90% protection from infection. So, Adi, Adi that, these results are, to me, astounding. Um, and I don't want to run too far past the top line, which you just summarized well, but I want to actually point out another observation here, which is consistent and kind of in, increasing the strength of the story. Am I reading it right that if that natural vac- that natural infection occurred before July 1 last year, mm-hmm. the cumulative effect is less powerful than if it's a more recent? And is that because the, 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 the protective power of the natural infection wanes? Or is it because the variant you were infected by is probably more closely related to the current variants? I, I, I would I would argue that I don't know. <laughs> I don't think I think it's not identifiable. They might there might be better data that could tease it out. Okay, and it probably the answer is probably a little bit of both. It, it, we do know at this point that prior infection, that immune actual naive immunization, I mean uh, natural immunization, wears off as an ability to protect infection, as this happens with lots of coronaviruses. Okay, Your normal cold is a coronavirus. Having the 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 cold keeps it out for a while. But it, it it mutates and it easily evades that original line, first line of defense, 
And that's why we get colds over and over and over again, even, uh, because they just are slightly different. And But our, our B cells and our T cells are pretty strong. And okay. that prevents us uh, from getting seriously ill from the coronavirus. <laughs> Let's, so I, think the, let's, I think the most important thing to me, also, I agree with you, Kate, from this picture is that there's a couple things. One is there's clearly a main effect of being infected there's, uh, in terms of protection. There's clearly a main effect of being recently infected versus previous. There's also an interaction effect between the number of doses. In other words, the steepness of the curve of the value of the uh, uh, dosage as opposed to, as a function of infection status. And so those to me, and actually infection status appears to be just, if I grouped everybody into infected ever versus not, there appears to be a very large main effect for previous infection status. One could argue at least the size of the effect of uh, uh, being vaccinated. Let's, good, good, good. But let's, let's, since our listeners are not looking at this chart, let's just kind of summarize quickly. If you look at just the groups that were as, as vaccinated as, as possible in this sample, which is three doses, and you just kind of, they have a few different populations, but you kind of group them together. If you've never had a natural infection, then your risk of transmission is something like, I don't know, high 40% or something like that. If you were also, in addition to those three doses, infected prior to last July 1st, that protection goes up to about 60%. About 60. If you were infected since July 1st, in the last whatever that is, nine months, then it's up to something like mid eighties, upper eighties. I mean, that's a big increase just in how recent, whether you're infected and then especially if you were infected recently. Yeah. It's, it's really a big increase, particularly if you think about it in terms of the other way around, it's the, so 60, 50 to 60% versus 80 to 90% is a lot bigger because you have to think about what it, what the multiplier is. It's a multiplier between 0.1 and point and 0.5. It's about three or four times Fold extra effectiveness. That's well. Here's another. Here's another neat stat from this, Kate. These two groups are equal. Okay. Another way to think about it: unvaccinated, but recently infected, versus triply vaccinated, Mm -hmm. but not recently infected. There you go. There you go. Those two groups are both right around sixty percent. That to me is one of the most shocking things from this. And by the way, you weren't saying. you weren't saying never is this you weren't saying never infected it was no nope, i was saying you were not recently infected yeah and uh triple vaxxed yeah sorry recently infected and unvaccinated yeah is equivalent to not recently infected and triply vaccinated mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Okay, just to remind people what and we're talking about. That's against infection. That yeah. does not mean against death or hospitalization. Well, that's what I wanted to. That's what I wanted to come back to because this. I mean, these are fun numbers to look at, and it's a really interesting pattern. But we typically don't focus much on the show by choice on infection because we typically care about more serious stuff. Is that right? Well, yes, but I think in, in particularly in this wave, though, there's so much coronavirus. I mean, it is everywhere. And I'm just, I mean, it's a natural question for those just like me. I fit in this pat in this group, three shots. I'm, I don't want to get sick, right? I mean, forget it. I'm amazingly confident that I will not get hospitalized, but mm-hmm. I don't care. I mean, I don't want to be out for a week, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so the question is, what do I make of that? And I'm really happy to know that I'm in that, that, that it's, it's still quite unlikely that even, I mean, I was quite, we were in Montreal for the weekend, a lovely uh, family celebration. 
Um, but the, my, my first cousin once removed, you know, 10-year-old boy, 11-year-old boy, he showed up COVID yesterday. Um, I gave him a big hug on Sunday. Um, you know, I'm going to, you know, uh-oh. No, I, I don't think I'm going to get COVID because of uh-huh. that chart. Uh-huh. 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 All right. Super interesting. Okay. What else around the world of uh, COVID? I know Leonardo has been taking some flack in various corners in the last couple of weeks. I didn't see this piece, but what was this piece? Eric, did you or Adi write this down? Leonard puts the obvious into print. What do you mean by that, Adi? Yeah. Okay. So what, what the obvious into print. So basically he actually, I could have given him a second title. The title of his was masks work, masks mandates don't. Um, and his basic point is, and this is what I think is obvious to everyone, is that the mask mandates have failed to stop COVID. Um, there really is no difference between communities that have masks more and communities that have masked less. And you can even go so far to look at places like Hong Kong, which have an essentially 99% compliance with extreme mask mandates. They don't, they don't, they don't screw around there. And they've had huge outbreaks. Um, just interestingly enough, there's, I'm not sure this is coincidental with Leonard's article, but there was an article published in the CDC's MMMR, which is not a peer reviewed journal. It's a CDC sort of, uh, uh, information outlet that had analyzed these Arizona school districts. And we talked about it on our show extensively. This was a terrible study um, because there's a lot in Arizona, an interesting, a very interesting place because they actually have huge variety of school of, of, um, of districts, some masking, some not giving you the variance you need to actually look for, for mask efficacy. They claimed in the original study that it was, it, that there was significant differences in the infection rates among the children and the people involved in these schools and the ones that masks had much lower. But there was a huge amount of deserved criticism that they didn't control for really important factors like amount of days that the schools were open. The fact that some of the schools in the in the mask group were never were not open at all. And in fact, so there certainly weren't any infections they uh, found through school because they were they were masked. And that and it deserved it gave you, that it gave you the variance you needed and, and more. <laughs> yeah. But so this is a, a bunch of new researchers. Uh, uh, they they looked at a much bigger data set controlled for the things that need to be controlled and they didn't find any any difference between the communities that have masks and those who don't and this is and this is one of the reasons why this is true is well and so what leonard's article he says he talks us through it he says that frankly um no one's where i mean it's people don't wear masks long enough consistently enough of the highest enough quality right. the right way to provide enough benefit and um i i argue mathematically that you know, at any given time, they might offer if it's worn right. And but in the end, you know, you, what are you doing? You're just delaying it. Um, the only way to really avoid getting COVID is to really not see anyone. Um, and there's no and there's no way. Well, to- hold on, you're, you're, what, I think the main argument that you've made in recent weeks or months is that in many settings, it's 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 a fallacy to think it's going to protect you because you sit there and you're going to marinate in it. But that doesn't mean that in other settings where you're passing through, you you get this temporary benefit with the proper mask worn properly and and moving through the environment. You're much less risk than you talked about the waste of time of wearing a mask if you're going to sit in an unventilated closed space for 30 minutes and have a conversation. Yes. But I think one of the things is that is that is that you just don't you have to recognize is it iterative, you know, so if you. Um, okay, this is a different point. No, but it's just it's part of it, right? So unless you are really rigorous at all times, right, 
You just but, 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 that, but that, that is a different point. It is yeah. a different point. Uh, you have to concede masks. If someone were to wear a properly used, you know, KN95 or N95 mask and was vigilant about it at all times, they would have a significant reduction That's in right. their chances of getting COVID. But, but Adi, let's, let's, let us go with your... I mean, I'm going to go back to the, the original point I'm making. I still hold that's a, as in a single setting. But take, for example, the idea of like masking when you when you go on the subway or in the, in the, and and most people think that's a good good idea. And I would argue that it is, except it's just going to delay. The, I mean, you're just going to end up getting it when the next time you're sitting there in a long in a long setting with a bunch of people in a restaurant or at a at a party. Unless you're going to really end those things. You are a probabilist. Right. How can you, as a probabilist, Smudge all those things together. Because basically what I'm saying is, is that the, the right thing to think about is not an individual event, but think about the expected time until you get it. No, but to, sorry, let me just point out. This is, something I've brought up last, this is something you brought up, I, I think it's maybe the week before last. I told you what my goal was as a person, just me individually, when COVID came out. My goal was to delay it long enough so that either A, they found better vaccine, they found a vaccine, or B, they found better therapeutics. So I would argue that the delaying process is worth a huge amount in terms of expected hospitalization and death. You'd much rather have it later than before, not just due to the overcrowding in hospitals, but the Paxlovid wasn't around, fluoxamine wasn't around, all of these things weren't around a year ago. So the delay is your friend, delay is worth life. It was, but I think at this point, not not anymore because we're not, I don't think we're ex- expecting any changes. What what is needed has been done, and to a certain level, it's a miracle. And that's the thing that I think we just forget about is that there has been is so much progress in treating COVID and preventing COVID. And and so and I will say I don't I don't disagree with you except to say I think what you just said you may be saying with a little too much certainty just cuz I've learned that I've said way too many things with too much certainty on this show so I'll I'll blame me but I'll translate it to you um I don't know we've learned what we need to learn and I still you know what if someone gave me the opportunity for another 6 month or 1 year delay I'd run towards that door that gives it to me right now cuz I don't know what's going to what happen cost? and what cost yeah that's it isn't that's that's exactly what Audi is always pushing us on and I think that's the right, right thing it's like look there's a cost benefit you need to be running the calculations you need to adjust those conclusions as the costs change as the probabilities change but you need to always be weighing the costs against the benefits I think that's reasonable so that, that and I think that's important because you're seeing a lot of a lot of places who are saying we're not we don't we're not saying COVID is over, but we're saying that the that the, the that the, the onus is now on the individual to decide how they want to they want to. I tell you what, the, it's the the calculus. I mean, the cost the cost has changed because it's a big coordination game. I mean, when things first hit, the whole world were taking these measures, yeah. and your family, your friends. Seeing them, everyone was kind of going about it the same way. Now there's much less agreement that there's a there's a right way to do this. And so if you want to be super compliant and super careful, and by God, some people have to. Some people are in situations where they're at risk for a number of reasons. It's just harder to do it because the rest of the world's not coordinating with you on it. It's fundamentally changed in that way. Yep. It is. I mean, yep, I would agree. And I also I think um 
since we know more, I think it's also easier from a societal perspective just to say people that really, as Adi said, people that really don't want to get COVID, they know what they need to do. And if you get it immediately, if you want to be vigilant, you know it exactly, get Paxlovid or get fluoxamine, get it yeah. immediately. Yeah. There, and, is, and, there is more of an opportunity to make right. the argument for individual responsibility. Now. That's right, Eric. And, and actually a big part of that is testing and the availability of the testing. And so um, for our prescriptions to other people, we would say, look, have the test at home, test liberally yep. and catch it as early as possible and then get one of these treatments as quickly as possible. That with I'm those, hoping that he gets a test after his hug from his uh, first cousin <laughs> once removed because you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't want to see Adi at the spin class with, uh, with, yeah. uh, unless he's gotten tested. There we go. Yeah. Okay, team. Oh, you got something else there? I, well, you know, I read something very interesting, and this I'd love to get maybe an infectious disease doctor to comment on it, because um, many of us have had colds in the last few months um, and have tested negative, and it just said, well, colds are back, right? Um, and obviously, they must be, right? I mean, colds don't go away. Um, but what, one interesting observation that was made was that if you are vaccinated, have already had prior immunity, your immune system ramps up so quickly and so aggressively that what is appears to be a cold is just a very quick, I mean, that's mucus is what is prevents it from leaving the nasal cavities essentially and preventing the virus from really spreading and multiplying and that you don't pass an antigen test because there's too little virus. Get out of here. Yeah. And I, I, I read it, you know, I don't know whether this is true and I'm going to, going to hold off on, on promulgating it, but because lots and lots of people uh, have reported having what looks to be um, like COVID, and are negative, 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 negative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, so, so I had exactly this experience. Last time I was in Philadelphia, I flew into the eye of the storm. Yeah. And I was up there for, for a few days on the tail end of it. I'm like, I, this is the most in more than two years, I believe I have COVID. I'm, I, and I, I PCR tested two days in a row, and I antigen tested two days in a row, and they were all negative. And I'm like, and, but, I, but I came back here. It wasn't allergies. I came back here. I was still fighting it when I came back to Texas. And I'm like, well, it must have been a cold. And I and so I like the story of no, I just had a super geared up um, antibody system. And there are many people who report six days of, of negative antigens, and then bam, seventh day positive. Huh. All right. Okay, team. Super interesting. Thank you. Appreciate it. That has been the first quarter of Wharton Money. Well, we still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. Cade Massey hosting with my buddies and colleagues, Eric Bradlow, Audie Weiner. You guys can jump in here. We'd love to hear from you. You can catch us on Twitter at WMoneyBall is our handle on Twitter at WMoneyBall. We follow all of our guests. We tweet about the world of sports and sports analytics. We get questions, complaints, ideas, suggestions, and we like getting those things from you guys. So let us know. You can also reach out by email. Our email address is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu, moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. We treat it like our mailbag. We read everything you send us. We get as much as possible online, and we'd love to hear from you. Gentlemen, we are deep. It's a fun time in sports. I mean, there's just a lot going on in sports right now. We're deep into the NBA playoffs. We're getting deep into the NHL playoffs. Um, curious how you're experiencing this, what you're thinking. I have to say, 
I'm about as pleased and excited about the NBA finals as I can remember being since like the great ones of my childhood or early adulthood. I mean, this is two great franchises, interesting matchup. I like both teams. I like the management of both teams. I like players on both teams. It's going to be a lot of fun. What are your thoughts on the NBA, Adi? All right. So I'm going to appeal to you, particularly Eric. Um, how many top 10 players are in, are in, the, uh, in the finals? Top 10 NBA players? Yes. Okay. So currently, I think you'd have to count um, you'd have to count Steph Curry still as a top 10 NBA player. Okay. And you'd probably count Jason Tatum as a top 10 NBA player. Those are consensus top 10. So I would say each team has one top 10 NBA player. And then you've got a number of players who people would call kind of in maybe tier two, tier three, which would be for the Warriors, certainly a healthy Clay Thompson, but you'd have to say Clay Thompson would be maybe a tier two player. I would say Andrew Wiggins is probably, and Draymond Green are tier two class tier three players. For the Celtics, you have the defensive player of the year, Marcus Smart. That's got to be worth something. You have Jalen Brown, who I think everyone would call a tier two player. So I would say from that point of view, you know, I love tiers, you know, my tier of Hall of Fame. I would say that you have top three on both teams kind of cancel each other out. I think you have about the same strength at the top of both lineups. So do you think that this is unusual? Usually, I mean, usually yes. there's more high-power talent in the finals. Yeah, I don't think – I think this is – I like the way Cade framed it. I think it's a great matchup. I'm intrigued by it. Um, these are the top two defensive teams in the NBA this year, which most people don't think of Golden State as being one of the top defensive teams, but they were. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think these are historically great teams, but I think this is a historically mm-hmm. interesting matchup. <laughs> I don't think both of these – no, this team would get slow. Oh, Let's even do uh, use your, yourself as your own control. This team against the 2016 Warriors gets absolutely destroyed. The, the, <laughs> the Warriors of five years ago destroyed this team. The I don't know. The I think I think a healthy Milwaukee Bucks team of last year beats easily either of these. Well, teams. arguably that yeah, they should have beat the Celtics in the Eastern semis this year without the injury. Yeah. So I just think I, I think Adi, it's one of those things. It's an intriguing matchup. It's really, I think, it's nearing the end of a potential dynasty because, you know, this is potentially the sixth or the fourth title in eight years for the Warriors. But on the other hand, um, you know, they're getting older. And so I, they got to be near the end. If, if this isn't the last year for the Warriors, it's the next to the last year for the Warriors. So I think from that point of view, it's really interesting. And this is the beginning, in my view, of the peak period now for the Celtics because Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown they're right entering their peak as NBA players. Yeah, there's a real difference there generationally, no question. And it shows up in the playoff experience, and especially the finals experience. I heard something something like the Warriors roster has 140-something games finals experience, finals experience, 140, and the Celtics are zero. I mean, that's really a generational difference. Now, the Warriors will hey, – they, it's possible that they're bringing the next generation along while they still have the last great generation. It's one of the interesting features about their club. Um, but you're right. I mean, other than Horford, who's the grand old man, the stars for the Celtics are a, a, a different crowd. Um, anything about the way they got there? Anything about that? The the the, the Celtics barely squeaked by. I mean, J- Jimmy Butler might have been a shot for history if he had made that three-pointer at the yep. end. I mean, they sure did take him to the 
to the to the very end to the tape on that. Well, I think what it shows you, and this is a point I was going to make with, that Adi asked about in, indirectly. Who do you trust on the Celtics at the end of the game if you need a basket? That's Tatum. the part I'm. That's Tatum. the part I'm concerned about. I, well, no, Tatum but, looked spectacular in, in late in that game. He made some clutch shots late. No, no, no. I know, but not well. Not really at the end. Remember, the Celtics were up like 13 points with three or four minutes to go, and that seems no, no. to be a repeat performance okay. of the Celtics that they yeah, can't, but they can't quite score enough. Look, I think this. I like the Celtics in the series. I actually do. I think the Celtics have a better defensive team, and I think the older team's going to wear down in the series. That's what I think. I think it'll be two-two, and then I like the Celtics uh, for the remainder of the series. But I will say. If you ask me if it's a tie game with a minute left, who do I trust more? I trust the Warriors more at the end of the game. I well, do. not only not only I think okay, let's put it this way. Let's a version of Adi's question is across all ten starters, give me your top three guys you want to take the last shot. And certainly the top two are on the Warriors. Absolutely. So, and and maybe even third, but I, I think Tatum is I, I I liked his performance better. I I give him credit. Yeah, yeah. The the thirteen point lead got whittled down, but on more than one occasion, while it was being whittled down, it got pushed back because Tatum made big difficult. But shots. look, at some point, you have to start giving Tatum his props. I mean, he is you know for whatever it's worth, it's not a huge sample size, but he is four and one in game sevens. He played in his young career. He's I understand, but he's not zero and five. I'm not saying four and one is some yeah. miraculously different thing. Two you, and a half, and two and a half. five. <laughs> it's a young career. <laughs> so, well, Eric, you could. I'm, Eric, I want to say that I'm. If push comes to shove, I think I would bet Celtics also. I, but I, I think the rest is an interesting question because the Warriors needed a break and they got it. They took care of the Mavs. They were probably a little ahead of schedule of the Celtics Heat series anyway, and they got it done in six. And so they've had these extra days and here come the Celtics through this brutal Eastern playoffs. And it's going to be interesting to see whether there's some cumulative effect there. All right. We're going to talk a little more basketball with Neil Payne, our longtime friend, Neil Payne, 538 in the fourth quarter. So let's shift gears and hear about the NHL. We're not quite as far along. We're in the conference finals with the last four teams set. Eric, I think you and I both have been watching a little more hockey than usual. It's been a fun playoff. So Adi, have you caught any at all? Not really, although I was in Montreal, and of course it was on all televisions, all the places, all the time. <laughs> even though they're not even in the playoffs? That's even though they're not. They're, they watch hockey, just that's, that's it. I wonder who they pull for. They must have some play. They must have French-Canadian players strewn throughout the league that leads them to pull for various teams. Um, great fun. Great fun. Eric's, Eric's Rangers made it through Game 7 last night, a, a resounding win last yeah. night. Yeah, it was just a little surprising that they won 6-2 to two on the road in Game 7. There's no doubt that that was surprising. And remember, again, remember that Shane had told us, and we had been talking about this for weeks, there were two teams that had historically great seasons this year. Well, one of them is who the Rangers just beat, was the Panthers. I think they had 120 or 122 points, which, you know, if you, the minute you cross the 120 barrier, you've had a, one of those top 10 seasons of all time. They lost 6-2 to two at home, and the Rangers dominated uh, in the game. Hold and on, then, they, beat the, they beat the Hurricanes last night. Oh, was the Hurricanes? Yeah, yeah. Oh, the Hurricanes. Sorry, sorry. So that's so the Panthers. The Panthers got knocked out, and by the oh, Lightning, you're right. the Panthers, same, yeah, yeah, same, same round. The Lightning knocked out, but you're right that the 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 Lightning did not have the regular season that the Panthers did. 
but it was the no, same no, round. But they, they yeah, cleaned yeah, them yeah, up in the, like four games. And actually, what's interesting is I was shocked to find out. I just assumed because they were the two-time defending champs and they had a great regular season. I assumed the Lightning had home ice against the Rangers until I found out they just said no. The game, they the were, first game's in New York, and I'm like, it is. Yeah, yeah, no, they did not have the regular season that you'd expect. So in the West, you have the other team that had a great regular season. They had Abs facing the Oilers after the Oilers won the Battle of Alberta pretty convincingly against Calgary. And that's going to be fun. I mean, we, we had this thing where we talk about the angels and we always want the angels to make the playoffs. We can watch their great players play more. And this is the way it's been with the Oilers. We just needed more time with the Oilers. So we get more time with McDavid. And so well, thank God they've made the final, the conference finals. So I have a question for Adi because it's almost, I'm asking you not because it, because you don't watch a lot of hockey. Let's imagine the finals Adi is the Colorado avalanche who are the best of the second best team in hockey this year. Okay. During the regular season against the Lightning, who are maybe the fifth or sixth or seventh best overall, but are the two time defending champs. Hmm. What do you do then when do you put any weight whatsoever on the fact that the Lightning are the two time defending champs? Like, if let's just say, let's ignore the past, let's just say it would have been 70 30 Avalanche or 60 40, 65 35 Avalanche based on regular season record, ELO rating, strength, et cetera. How much weight, if anything, do you put on the fact that the Lightnings would be going for three in a row? Well, okay, so there's two issues. One is the the experience that we that, that is interesting. That the fact that you you can think about how many games you've played at the highest level on the greatest stage, and the other is the prior, right? So you you what did you list them as the fifth or sixth best team in the NHL? Well, he's, think, he's he's making it up, but yeah, just, they're much further down the. the much, so I would argue that there's some level of underplayment that they had getting to this point in the in the season, and that therefore they probably are a quite a bit better than than where you think they are. So he so wants after he, the as previous a, two years as a Bayesian, he wants to know what the prior was on uh, the Lightning coming in. He says maybe you're going to overweight the regular season. It's noisy. God knows what was going on. Give me the prior. I think is one version of what he said, which I, I think is great. And my prior is on them because they're the two-time defending champ, puts them at one as the prior, right? So um, you're just guessing that the prior is higher than the regular season performance. I bet that's right, and and it's a little bit like at least at least a mix. I mean, a strong mix. Mix it up, yeah. Well, this is, I was exactly this is right. The Panther, the Lightning had the sixth best record, by the way, in hockey this year. So I was guessing, but I guessed right on the number. You have Avalanche, the second best, or where, where they had the second best. They had, but just to show you, they had 119 points, and the uh, uh, Lightning had 110. So I understand 119 is bigger than 110. But 110 is good. 110 is really good. Yeah. All right. So what, what's the Vegas line? Because I would argue that there it should be almost a dead heat, maybe a tiny advantage to the Avalanche, but not much. Well, I, I haven't even looked at the. Uh, we're not there yet. <laughs> yeah, we're not even there yet. We're still one round before that. I was just bringing up the total hypothetical. All right. All right. Well, listen. Uh, let's skip to go from to get to uh, to the finals. What was that, Adi? What do they? What is that? What do they each have to go through to get to the finals? The Av- the Avs are hosting the Oilers, the Edmonton Oilers, with the what everyone says is the best player in the world right now, and McDavid. They had one hundred and four points in the regular season, and then uh, the Rangers are opposite the Lightning, and they also the- had one hundred and ten points, but they have home ice because of obviously some tiebreaker against the Lightning. 
but I feel like every series, almost every series in the first two rounds went six or seven games. And then the lightning just blew through the Panthers who had a, who had a great regular season. So you could argue that the lightning are hot. Um, okay. Good fun. Those series are getting going and we'll be watching that for a little bit. Speaking of watching, Eric has been distracted so far in the show because there is a major tennis tournament with a major matchup. This is quarterfinals. Djokovic and Nadal are playing right now. This is Tuesday afternoon. What's the latest, Eric? Well, as we're speaking, Nadal raced out to a huge lead. Uh, he won the Nadal won the first set 6-2. And I, I even commented before we went on the air, this looked like the Nadal of 10 years ago. It was as great as he could play. He then got, went out to a 3 nothing lead in the second set, and then Djokovic got really serious. And so then Djokovic <laughs> has now won the third set, a second set, 6-4. Uh, to four. However, Nadal has just gone up a second break in the third set. So Nadal is now up 4-1 to one in set number three. Jeez. So this is just a titanic war. And the reason I kept thinking about last year's matches People may know, I consider the two most important matches in the history of tennis. One was in 2000, I think it was 18, when Roger Federer, I've talked about this match a hundred times, at Wimbledon, yeah, Federer yeah. was up 8-7 in the fifth set, serving up 40-15 to Djokovic. Yeah. Serving, the greatest server in the history of men's tennis, could not hold his serve and lost in a 13-12 tiebreaker. Yeah, so yeah. there, Djokovic beat Federer on his best surface. Last year, Nadal won the first set. A 13-time champion was in the semifinals, beat Djokovic the first set, and then lost the next three. So Djokovic finally overtook Nadal. If Nadal wins this match, it now flips the story on last year. In other words, if Nadal, if Djokovic had won this, he may still win this match, but if he wins this match, it changes a lot. Besides, he can get to 21 and tie Nadal. I think if Nadal wins this tournament, he gets to 22. Now, Djokovic is two behind, which means he needs three more to pass. He just turned 35. There's no guarantee he's going to get three more majors at the age of 35 and beyond. So this match that we're watching here would kind of flip things back. This is an absolutely crucial match. Well, so it sounds like Nadal is in good place for the to take his second set in the third set, and then we'll just see whether Djokovic can answer We'll just back see, right? We'll just see what happens. But let me also time. say, just to show you, um, go, this is why I didn't bet on it. I could have. Going into this match, I was, Djokovic was minus 225. That just really? seemed really oh, wow. high to me. Really, uh-huh. really high to me. And the other one that seemed high, which I really should have bet, which was um, Carlos Alcaraz, who's the new phenom, who just, you know, beat, yeah. we've talked about him on the air. He beat, just beat... Yeah. Uh, Djokovic, Nadal, and Zverev in the tournament. 18-year-old, 18-year-old Spaniard? 19-year-old. He just turned 19. Mm -hmm. He was minus 425 against Zverev, the number three player in the world. And he lost. Uh, Zverev beat him in four sets. It should have been three sets. Okay. And so... Why why were those such long odds against Zverev when... uh, Zverev was 0-10 in his career against top 10 players in majors. He had never beaten a top 10 player in a major. So despite being number three in the world, he's one of those people like, you know, I'm number one in golf, but I've never won a major. Well, not only has Zverev not won a major, he's not even beaten anybody really good in a major until okay. this win. What do now we know about, has. what do we know about, I, I know Zverev is the one who survives, so we should be focusing on him, but Everyone's talking about Alcaraz, so I want to know. What do we know about the surface preferences of those two players? 
I would say that Zverev, because of the power of his serve, is probably better on grass or hard courts. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alcaraz's most success has come on clay, so that's been his best surface. So that's another thing that I think played into the minus 425 for Alcaraz. And, and Nadal, I, I don't even know if uh, uh, Zverev has ever even won a tournament on clay. At 19 years old, Alcaraz has won two or three tournaments already on clay. Okay. So that also played into it as well. But I think, again, your point is it shocked you that the number six player in the world, Adi's in the base rates. Adi, if I told you the number six player in the world was playing the number three player in the world and the number six player was minus 425, you might reach for your wallet and say, that's interesting. That the number six, I'm just saying that minus 425, six versus three. That's quite interesting. And I think the yeah, same thing was true the, the with Djokovic. Is, to an, is a randomly selected service, right? The ranking is not on a randomly so The ranking is an aggregation across aggregate, all right. surfaces. It's, an aggregate, it's a weighted average of all the surfaces that you play. So Yeah. And by the way, they may play 100 times on clay, and Alcaraz may indeed win 85% of those matches. Yeah. Uh, but he didn't win today, and Zverev looked like the better player. So now, But the point, here's the important point is that now the winner of Nadal and Djokovic, the the assumption everybody made was that they were going to play Alcaraz. Well, they're not. They're now playing Zverev. And on the other side of the draw are actually four, not unseated, but, I mean, whoever's on the other side of the draw is in trouble in the finals. A a Dane who's also 19 years old, Rune, uh, just beat Tsitsipas, and he's playing Kasper Ruud, who's uh, another young player, they're playing in one quarterfinal, and Marin Cilic is playing Rublev in the other. So that means one of the four of Rune, Rude, Cilic, or Rublev is going to be in the finals against <laughs> the winner of this match or Zverev. So, I mean, whoever wins this side of the draw is going to be a massive favorite in the finals. All right. Massive. All right. All right. Good fun. And how's this going to play out? It's early in the week now, so this is going to be a Sunday final between now and then they're going to work. It is these- men's, but I should say one thing just quickly before we leave tennis. Iga Swantek. Uh, the number one women's player in the world has now won 32 consecutive matches. If she wins the French, she'll tie the all-time, well, not the all-time record, the re- record in the modern era since 2000 when they started collecting data like this. She will have won 35 straight matches, which will tie Venus Williams' record. So we have a true dominant number one in the world right now on the female side, and she's 20 years old, and she's an amazing player. So it's, in- it's interesting that Venus has that record, and that's, <clears throat> not Serena. Well, Serena's won back at 34. Let's not 35 versus 34, but it's still, it was Venus in 2000. Venus's peak was. Yeah, a great right. Peak. Okay. okay. How many tournaments is 35? Is that six? Parts it is six. six tur- this would be her sixth consecutive tournament win. Okay. Wow. Okay. She hasn't lost since Ash Barty, the former number one retired. <laughs> Literally. She hasn't Amazing. lost since. Amazing. Well, that's quite different than we've, we've for years on this show, we've talked about women's tennis as being like all comers, like whoever, anybody can win these things. It's been a while since we've seen the dominant player on that side. Um, listen, before we hit break, let's talk a little bit about golf. Eric, I missed last week whenever you were so worried that Scotty Scheffler wasn't going to get it done because he took a week off after his. Well, he didn't get it done. I was so right. You were he so lost in right. a playoff. That's a better way to put it. You were so right. But. But no, no, no. I'm talking about two weeks ago because um, you were worried about how he was going to play in the PGA. And oh, he missed the cut. And he missed the cut exactly. So now, now you're saying he's back on because he made the playoff. He lost in the playoff, 
but he made the playoff. Was it the Byron Nelson? So it was. The, his his buddy bombs a 38 footer in the playoff to win the thing. So at least he didn't give it up. He he, he the other guy won it. But where do you put Scotty Scheffler now, Mister Momentum? I have no idea. So he he seemed to have cooled because he took that extra time off, and you were worried about that breaking his momentum. That prediction held, but now he's right back. So this gets back to something that I've talked about a lot. Just quickly for momentum, um, again, it doesn't have to be a consecutive streak. The fact that he played well still shows he has momentum. You're not worried about his poor performance in the PGA missing the cut in the major? I'm not worried about it in terms of momentum. No, I think he's got momentum going forward. And it doesn't have, matter of fact, we, we studied this statistically. It doesn't have to be consecutive runs. All right. All right. Okay. Well, keep your money on Shuffler then. All right, guys. That has been two quarters of Wharton Money. By the way, we still have two quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the third quarter now, still open lines. This is Cade Massey hosting with Eric Bradlow, Audi Weiner. Eric's at home. Audi's at his sister's in New Rochelle in transit. Glad you guys can join. Springfield, New Jersey. Oh, my bad. What was the New Rochelle business? That's where she's also split, split your time. (laughs) All right. So Jersey, not as far from Philly. Gentlemen, we talked about a horse a few weeks ago and then the horse went away and the horse is back. So are you going to be tuning in Saturday afternoon, Belmont Stakes, not for the Triple Crown, but for whatever it's called, if you skip the Preakness and win the Belmont after winning the Derby. Red Strike, third favorite right now. Mo Donegal, who raced the Derby, is the fourth, I believe. Okay. Okay, so Modonigal 5-2, We the People 7-2, Rich Strike, our favorite Rich Strike, who is 80-1 in Kentucky Derby, or 79-1, is 5-1. Any news here? Any interest here? What's going on? Well, a couple things. One is, um, I think Adi would agree with this. But let me pretend, Let me find out if Adi agrees with this. I'm here. Um, <laughs> we're taking, yep, we're here. That's a good thing. Um, mm-hmm. Rich Strike was 80-1 going into the Derby. Won the Derby. All of a sudden now, five to one. That sounds way, way too high for me, even though we have evidence from the Derby, which is, as you know, a shorter race in the Belmont. I think the reason why Mo Donegal, despite losing to Rich Strike in the Derby, is because if you look at the last, I don't know, third of the race, Mo Donegal was the horse coming on fast. So people are giving it credit for oh, if that on. race had only been this that's the standard counterfactual. Well, hold on, hold on. I, so now I don't know what that horse was doing at the end, but obviously rich strike blew past the second and third horse. I know, but Mo Donegal was also as well, uh, you know, he's known, up to a lot of horses he's, at the end. He's known as a, as a closer or a long or a long racer. Okay. Yeah. And, and I think also, you know, at some level, maybe you could say, you know, there's more variance in a shorter race. So yeah, Rich Strike could win that race, but let's say it went the, the, the king of all races, the Belmont. So Adi, you would agree going from 80 to one to five to one, even with a win in the Kentucky Derby seems like a tremendous shortening of the odds, right? It does. But you know, this Belmont business of being so long, I mean, how am I supposed to look at Rich Strike? Is it super speed over a short race or? No, 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 no. He was, he was, the reason that he didn't do well is because he, he didn't, he was he won because the pace was super hot at the Kentucky yeah. Derby and he did not get caught up in that. And then he had a lot left and he was, a, he was a closer. I see. And he's not, I think they, they think of him as better for longer distances. That's why they didn't race the Preakness. Mm-hmm. 
But Eric's point is, are people just overreacting to the Derby winner? Yes, yes. Look, he's, he's not the shortest. He's not the shortest odds. I mean, Mo yeah. Donegal is is half the odds that that Ridge Strike is. Yeah, um, I, all I've come in is this seems of all the years that I've watched or uh, seen the Belmont. Um, I think there's so much bunching at the end. Like if I told you at the end, Ethereal Road, ten to one wins, you'd be like, okay. Even the seventh longest horse, Skippy Longstocking, neat name, thirteen to one. Okay. <laughs> no, I mean it's just like there's there's no the, the variation in the odds for the Belmont here is extremely flat if you look at yeah, a distribution right. of odds. Right. And that's why I think they're putting a lot of probability on a lot of horses. It's going to be a very tough race to predict. And especially, Maddie, by the way, I think the weather's supposed to be extraordinarily hot, which right. not going to help. Interesting. Kuchar, the longest horse is called Kuchar, like Matt Kuchar, which suggests that he will place but not win. Uh-huh. <laughs> very good, very good. Um, all right, guys, uh, NCAA finals time. There's lots of interesting tournaments going on. The women's field got set for the softball tournament over the weekend. So the, the women's um, college world series, which is in Oklahoma city, the top eight teams advanced from the super regionals there. The men's college world series just begins at the end of this week. The whole field of 64 just got set and they'll start the regionals later this week. I want to ask y'all, it's always fun to you see these different variations on tournament structure with the NCAAs. They give us lots of interesting examples because we get used to just a few at the pros. Here's the tournament structure for baseball, guys. And tell me a little bit about why you think this is. So the regionals, here's the way it goes. 16 regionals, each with four teams. And they play a double elimination tournament across the four. And then the winners of those advance to what's called the super regionals, which is just a two-team best two out of three. And then those eight super regional winners go into the College World Series, which, again, we go back to the four-team double elimination. And then in the final stage, the winners of those two four-team double eliminations advance to a two-team, two out of three. So you've got four-team double <laughs> eliminations, and then you've got these two out of threes, and then again back to the four-team double eliminations, and then closes with a two out of three. What in the heck? What is the rationale? What, what, and just statistically, what does that give us? Why, why, how would you rationalize? Well, I, mean, I have a few thoughts on it. I'm curious. On a certain level, you, you, they, baseball generally gets played every day, and you, you got to, there's a travel issue. So that may be part, part of the reason why that structure makes a lot of sense. You know, regional groupings, uh, double elimination, and, and then, I mean, are they all in the same spot? I mean, once they get to the, fun, the that, World Series, they're all in the same spot, right? Like in the, 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 the guys who host the regionals, if they advance to the supers, host the supers as well. Yeah. And then the, the World Series are always hosted and they're always in Omaha or Oklahoma City for the The, the one question I have for you, uh, Kate, is that does this structure prevent if you have the Nolan Ryan of all pitchers and that pitcher can basically win you the series single-handedly because the, the spacing between the games is such it's that this, this, it's tighter. And this actually makes it so you need to have a balanced team as opposed to one person just dominates. If that's true, then I like that structure at the college level. Yes, but I, th- I think it's um, – so you need, you need three starting pitchers for sure. Um, well, not for sure. If you can get you, you can if you have two real aces, you could not drop any games. I'm just intrigued by why you go back and forth between kind of the 14 doubles and then the two out of three. And what I think it could be as simple as um, the efficiency. You're not going to go with two out of th- with if every if everybody was two out of three. The contrary, 
The counterfactual is if you just pair them up, up in twos, everyone plays two out of three and you advance to play another two out of three. But then you might, you might have some to get through eliminating three teams. You might have to play nine games. And so I think things could get off schedule and it could be, it's that the four team pods pools are a little more efficient in that way. Um, the other thing is it, it means the matchups matter a little bit less. You get a, you get to play a broader set of teams. You're not as disadvantaged if you're set against just one really good team. The other interesting NCAA structure, the one that I love every time we come across it, is the men's golf. Oh, you've talked about this every year. Well, I, I want to hit it again just because it's, it's, it's just so unique. I say men's golf. I honestly don't know the way the women's is set up, but forget how they get there. I mean, because they do the, again, the regional saying, but let's, once they get to the nationals, it's 30 teams. These are five person teams and they play stroke play. So they take the best four scores out of the five golfers. And they do that for 72. They do that first for 54 holes. They play three rounds, three days, and they cut the field from 30 to 15. How many people you, play that you take the best scores? You have five person teams. They all play. And you and take you the best the four. four. Best four. I like that already. Yeah, already. So you're throwing out the worst, the worst, the worst score. Can we first of all, just for a quickly, can we talk about team construction? Does that mean you want some golfer that's got really high variance? Like, you know, maybe the person can shoot 68, but maybe they can shoot 78. It <laughs> it's a good matter. question. We should ask a college golf coach about that. That's interesting. The, the most interesting feature about the national, the national championships in the NCAA golf is that they play stroke for four rounds. It's a lot of golf. And then they flip over the last eight teams, the best eight teams from stroke play match. And so they play quarters, semis, and finals, head-to-head, head head, match play, best three out of five. Um, and so you really change things up at the end. They play four days of golf to determine the best eight teams, and then they match the number eight team to number one, number seven to number two, and they play – they just did it this morning. This morning was the first day of match. They cut eight to four via match play. They're playing the semis right now as we talk. They're playing the semis to go from four to two, and tomorrow they'll play the championship. So it's a dramatic change of format at the end. Okay, gentlemen, what do you make of that structure? Why do they do that? I don't, I've always played, by the way, because, you know, a, a five is the same as a 12. And so, you know, I like match play because if you lose a hole, you lose the hole. It doesn't matter. What do I care how many I lose by? So I, it leads to more aggressive play. It leads to more interesting play. Um, you could argue it leads to also higher variance. I would imagine, again, that, um, you know, take the greatest golfer in the world. That golfer has a better chance of winning a stroke play event against somebody than a match play event. For yeah. sure. And so I think this is fundamentally why it's they do this. Measuring, though. I mean, what's that? I, the measurement. I mean, to, isn't the, isn't golf supposed to be the sum of the strokes over a course? Why? Is uh, it, no, there's a, there's a long tradition of match play. So there's, there's, it's, it's as venerable a format as the stroke play is, but it is definitely a noisier format. And I think Eric has it exactly right. I think it's better drama. It's better TV. I think it's actually more satisfying way to crown a champ to go match play. But if you did match from the beginning, you would lose some of the best teams right away just out of chance. And so I love the hybrid format. You take 30 teams from around the country and you, and you, and you whittle it down to eight via the most reliable method possible, which is stroke. I agree. But then for drama and, and knockout um, tradition, you go to match for the last eight 
And I admire the creativity in, in doing it that way. And, but also you should watch one of these sometime. And so the, so the, the, the final will be tomorrow and it's team match play. And it is so much fun and they're kids and it, and there's nobody on the course and it's just real good TV. It'll be on the golf channel. I suspect um, it's, I would recommend the viewing um, as a good alternative to what we're usually watching. One last thing I want to point about the NCAAs. Um, they seed the baseball tournament. So again, they just set the men's field one to 64. They seed it heavily using RPI and RPI. It, most people know because they used to use it for NCAA basketball and it finally just got rid of it all together. It took abuse for a long time. It's antiquated. It's strength of schedule. It's like 25% of the formula is your own team's record. 50% of your form of the formula is the opponent's team's record. And then another 25 is your opponent's opponents. And so teams have a strong incentive to play stronger opponents for the RPI, but it's, it's so, it's so twisted now that teams this year, multiple teams canceled late season games against weak opponents in order to game their RPI numbers. This is how bad a model it is. They're literally beautiful. canceling beautiful. What do you mean beautiful? Let's come up with a different model. No, is, the system's transparent enough that people know to strategically cancel games. Good. They understand. <laughs> oh, it's beautiful. No, I mean, it's horrible. But, I mean, if, if someone can strategically do it and they allow it? Well, they need to we're, – we're analysts, and we need to advocate for better analytic solutions. And the RPI is awful. There's a zillion alternatives. Our friend Kenneth Massey, who no relation, runs his own rankings and aggregates other rankings – has very good models, very good alternatives. If you look at what those aggregate rankings say about the teams that are in the field, at one level, it's not bad. It's a noisy correlation. It's not bad. But some of these guys, like Stanford, I think they may be the number two seed in the whole tournament. They ended up with the other three teams in their pod that, according to the aggregate models, the good models, are just ridiculously strong. Like the most underrated team by RPI in the whole country is in the number two team's pod. And you get these kinds of discrepancies when you're not using good math. And there's just better math. There's no excuse for them using these bad, these bad models. You would think they would just evaluate it using the predictive validity. Like you've done this for so many years. Why don't we actually look at the performance as a result of the <laughs> RPI and show that it's actually weakly correlated with the actual performance outcomes? Well, I don't I quite understand how they could make good progress on the basketball side of the NCAA, but they're not making good progress on the rest of this. Guys, I know we've got a little bit of baseball to talk about. At the very least, let's talk about what's going on with Devers. What is it you're seeing about Rafael Devers, this, the Red Sox third baseman here? So I was just looking at leaders in baseball the other day just to see who's doing really well individually for the season. And I noticed that uh, Devers is um, – is forecast for 419 total bases this year. Just to be clear to everybody, a home run is four, triple is three, et cetera. And again, just quickly, um, if he were to get 419 total bases, that would put his season like at the 10th best season in terms of total bases in the history of baseball, which means the best season or the second best season Lou Gehrig ever had was 419 bases. Uh, Barry Bonds never had a season. Okay, Eric, Eric, hold on for one second. We're a quarter of the way through the season. How often do we have somebody a quarter of the way projected to be 419 if you just linearly extrapolate? Yeah, that's that's the issue. I just looked at Devers. And first of all, when you say projected, that means you're just you're taking you're linearly extrapolating. That's not projected. Projected would probably shrink back to what we more expect. Um, the reason why Devers is expected to, or is projected to have 419 based on the linear linear extrapolation, he's got 19 doubles. 
you know, 19 doubles one quarter of the way through the season, that projects in nearly 80. That's absurd. And one of the things that, that that's a huge, huge number. And doubles are one of the least predictable numbers uh, that Fork has. A lot of variance in doubles. And in fact, lots of models, uh, the insiders at baseball have told me that you just don't put any value on doubles year to year. Remember Miguel Andujar came up for the Yankees in his rookie year? He had like 45 doubles. Um, that's really- do, you want to, do you want to make those kind of singles, essentially, is what you're saying? Yeah, you know, they're hard hit balls, but where they land and, and how they end up doubles and singles is a lot of randomness. Okay. okay. So shrink back hard. So but you can look at singles hard. and doubles total and just shrink back towards, um, or uh, there's like across all players, there'd be a standard ratio of singles to doubles. And you're saying his ratio is off. That's right. So okay. Adi, what would you shrink towards? Well, I got to calculate this. I'm not, it's, it's one of the least familiar numbers that I have. So maybe for next week, I'll give you an answer. <laughs> It's an interesting, it's a, I mean, given the, given the history you're giving us here, Eric, Ruth, Hornsby, Gary, are you kidding me? Stan Musial, Sammy Sosa. I mean, given that, it is a super interesting stat. It'll be interesting to see how it goes between now and the end of the year. All right, guys, that was a quick Q3. We've got Q4 and a couple of interviews, so come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter now, I continue to be joined by my friend and colleague, Eric Bradlow. This is our interview quarter in the time of COVID. We're going to do two interviews this, this, this quarter. We want to take advantage of both sports that are in playoff mode right now, deep into playoff mode. To do that, we brought in Micah McCurdy to talk about hockey and then we're going to change gears and talk about basketball here in a few minutes. Micah, welcome back to the show. Great to see you. Thank you very much. For, thanks for having me. Micah, as some of you guys know, is a data viz guy. He approaches hockey heavy on the data viz side, helps us understand what's going on through some very cool visualizations. You can follow him on Twitter at ineffective math at ineffective math. He's also got hockeyviz.com, hockeyviz.com. Uh, he's, a, he's a mathematician by training. Micah. Um, we, we just want to catch up with you on the, on the playoff series. We've all been watching it. Actually, we, we can't claim to watch a lot of hockey in the regular season, but we tend to jump in the playoffs. And then I think for some reason, all of us have been a little bit more into it this year, partly because of what was going on in Alberta. Shane Jensen, our friend and longtime collaborator is from Calgary. And he, he was warning us about this potential battle for Alberta, you know, long before everybody even qualified for the playoffs. And then it just happened. And so that even got us invested over in the West. Uh, we're kind of always in for Dubas and the Leafs because he's an analytics guy at, you know, at least that's his reputation and we know him a little bit and he seems to live up to it. So this is all to say we've been paying attention, man, but what do you think about this, this, uh, this playoff season? What do you make of it so far? I have definitely been enjoying it. It's been pretty high quality hockey. And, mm-hmm. and one of the recurring themes for every playoff series, every playoff season every year especially in the first rounds is watching one or two goalies be really really unexpectedly good mm-hmm. and uh and so the, the most obvious being jake ottinger who uh you know who's who's excellent to start with and then just took it to an entirely new level in the first round and you know okay. almost good enough to drag an extremely underwhelming dallas set of skaters over the line against calgary and then watching vasilevsky who's well known in the playoffs for his um, goaltending performances you know also be much, much better than his regular season form in the most recent series against Florida. 
So I, I'm a bit of a goalie aficionado. And so the playoffs are always, you know, very rewarding one way or another that way. Well, Micah, I mean, how much, how do we know whether they're actually playing at a higher level or we're just seeing some, you know, six heads flipped in a row. I mean, you flip, you flip 20 coins and chances of getting five in a row are as great as not getting five in a row, just purely by chance. So no, how, you, how do we know? You don't know for sure. And, and of course, like sometimes, and you, I exploit this ambiguity all the time and we all do. Sometimes you just say, you know, he's playing better just to mean he made more saves, but right. it's not quite the same thing. You know, if you want to say, well, why does no. he make the extra <laughs> saves? That's, the it's difficult. And I think you got to be, you know, a little bit more careful. And so I, I, I try to split the difference by saying, you know, if you're going to look back at the last playoff series, you should give the guy credit for exactly what he did in that playoff series only. But if you're looking towards the next playoff series, then you have to look at more than just one or two playoff series to make a prediction about who's going to be better. You have to look at more than just the playoff results. So, Micah, do you think that advanced analytics can help us? Like, for example, we can measure things we can measure for example, are the speed at which guys are playing, right? That we can measure. Um, we can measure probably expected goals given where shots are being taken from. We could probably measure that. So do you think that advanced analytics has the potential, or really better data has the ability to take us to they are really playing well compared to the distribution we would see on average? Well, hold on, yeah, let me just so. let me that to touch more because you see – fluky goals go in you see really good shots not go in and very different goaltender performance on this I, I remember I forget what series it was it was probably Calgary Edmonton and a goal got through the guy's legs but didn't just stop short of the line so it's just like chance the thing is not a goal instead of was a goal that kind of stuff happens all the time in hockey so I know I, I want to use this. I want to use advanced analytics exactly. to exactly. go beyond just the simple box score and that's what I was asking Micah about do we have the potential to answer those what used to be unanswerable questions because of better data we, we're getting there for sure better data and better models and better you know more sensible uh, framings to to try to include more details and try to average out over more unimportant details. You know, the, those like fluky things like, you know, puck goes off a stanchion and, and discombobulates the defense. And so the goal is just to tap in. You know, you don't want to hang that kind of thing on the goaltender who's, who's just as flummoxed as everybody else is. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think you can, you know, you still have to be careful about, about what total quantity of information you're talking about. You know, you're only talking about four, five, six, seven games in a series. And so that's, just not that much information, no matter how good you are at talking about it. But mm -hmm. I think we've definitely got to a place now where we can, well, expected goals is a perfectly good one. You know, we can use how many goals did you save over expected? And that's a big step forward compared to just what's your safe percentage where we're going to pretend like every shot is the same quality. Just, so just like it was a step forward over goals against average, which we, you know, have basically gotten rid of now. So let's just take expected goals and tell us how good expected goals is right now. And one of the things I'm, I'm, I've been thinking about this just even today because of looking at the Liverpool Madrid stats from last weekend, where you know <laughs> Liverpool just crushed them on shots and shots on goal and even expected goal, but lost one nil. So well, it's similar same, to similar to K the NBA. If you look at the advanced shot, uh, shot charts for the Warriors versus the Mavericks, the Mavericks should have won the first four games of that series and it should have been over. 
is based on based on what eric based on shot quality or something correct correct shot quality how open the players were at the time expected okay. field goal percentage based on where the shots were taken from they just missed shots okay, okay well there that always raises the question of how good the stat is right because maybe may, I, mean, right. I think one of those games are if i remember correctly you know the warriors won by 20 or 15 or something but the but the shot quality said that it was going to Correct. Which I'm usually inclined to like, but they, but you start wondering about the the quality of the stats. So, Micah, how how good are our expected goals stats at this at this stage, and what's it based on? So, it, it, on the one hand, it's always intrinsically difficult to be completely sure, even when you're talking about the state of the art about how good it is, because the only real way you can say how good it is <laughs> is by comparing it to the best possible, and and you're talking about the state of the art. So. You know, you it's as good as you can make it, especially if I'm the one making it. Well, you could know if you had a large enough sample, you could test the calibration. Yeah. And so for calibration, you know, like just purely as a matter of professionalism, I'm not putting out anything that's uncalibrated. And I don't think other people are either. The but but one thing you can do is you can you can sort of fillet it out into pieces. So just like that basketball example that you were mentioning a second ago, or, or the Liverpool Champions League final, where, you know, you have the expected goals, you have the expected baskets, the, like the, the underlying shot quality, and which includes the volume, of course. And then after that, you have the, what I think of as the purely mechanical, you know, can you actually shoot correctly, put the soccer ball in the net, the hockey puck in the net, the ball in the basket, you know, the, which is really very like, pure sports science, you know, can you put your fingers on the ball in the right way? Can you wrap the stick exactly right? You know, that kind of like hand-eye kinesiology, it almost gets into a kind of physics-y feeling there. And there I find it's useful to separate out, you know, shooter identities, goalie identities. Obviously, I'm sort of reverting back to hockey by, by nature. Oh, fine. Good. And, and then you, you like you can look at that over long periods of time. And so on the one hand, the, the chance that enters into it is still at its intrinsic level where you can't make every single shot, but you can see that some players, some shooters, some goalies are consistently overperforming. And so then yeah. when you see them do it again in the playoffs, you know, then it's easy to say, you know, I don't think this is coin flips. I think this is, you know, this goalie is better than that so- other goalie. Make sure I understand what you're saying. You're saying, look, we calculate those expected goals across all situations, all players, and then right. and then we can look at player residuals above or below that expectation. So I get that. That makes a lot of sense to me. You'd want to check for how persistent that is, of course, but I get it. What yep. I'm curious about right now is how good are we at valuing situations? And what's it like? What's it based on? If you tell me across all players, this goal was, you know, at a point eight expectation this shot had a point expectation 0.8 expectation versus this shot had a 0.15 what's that based on so you'd be looking at the at environmental factors at at contextual factors what sorts of you know you really the the configuration space like the full elaborate description of all of the possible plays that can ever happen you know is a gargantuan thing so so the the whole modeling process is saying you know these are the elements that i think are important and they, that comes from, you know, your own intuition about the sport, about watching it. You say, well, you know, defender positioning is obviously important for basketball shooting. And, you know, how far you are from the net is extremely obviously important in a very physical way. I think those models are, are getting pretty good in the sense that all of the obvious bases are, are being checked to some degree. 
you know, there's, there's also that aspect, you know, every time you look at a model, you think, boy, I wish I could make that a lot better. You know, I don't have the tracking data that lets me have, you know, gap to the near, you know, basketball people are making models where they have the distance to the nearest opponent. Right. And so they know how, you know, how tight is that three? Is that guy being defended within inches or is it feet or is it 10 feet? You know, there's totally different situations and that affects the goal probability, the the make probability, obviously. And I don't have that kind of level. So, so you're still going to see discrepancies. You're going to see something like, oh, that's a a 0.25 XG. And somebody's going to say, well, actually he was much more open than that pattern of shot normally has for shooter space. So like, I mean, a yes and no is sort of how these answers always go. But, but I think we're getting to a point where you can say something that even over a sample small, as small as a playoff series, you can still get results that are plausible and coherent. You know, you can okay. say for the whole series, you know, Jake Ottinger uh, surrendered 11 goals on 26 expected. You know, and, and that's sort of good to that kind of precision. Okay. And what, well, if I mean, you're just pulling numbers out of thin air, I assume, but if when you're talking about that big a discrepancy, it starts sounding, you know, it can be pretty reliable. So I, the, the specific numbers I made up, but the difference I remember uh, oh, is, is, okay. is, is 15, you know, he, oh scored, he saved 15 over the course of, you know, and that's overexpected, right? So it's something so broadly trying to put it in skater terms. That's kind of in the territory of like five to six hat tricks. Like, right. Right. So it's, it's and even even if like you know you you worry obviously about getting the detail right getting the the precision correct you worry about communicating at at that level of of coherence with with the structure with the technical details but on the other hand the point of it all for me is to always communicate something to fans and so if i can say something like you know look this is equivalent to this kind of performance from a skater you know now all of a sudden you go right. You know, if somebody says, oh, he had a 965 safe percentage, like if you don't know anything about hockey, you think, okay, is that great? But if you, you know, but if somebody says this guy, goaltender, did the equivalent of 15 goals better than you would have expected from some schmuck off the street who knows how to play hockey, you know, that's, (laughs) that's all of a sudden you're like, wow, 15, you know, that's that's right. And that's a great skill. I mean, that's kind of what you, that's your, that's what you trade in. That's a great skill as an analyst. Try to. Um, yeah. So, Michael, just quickly, since you're the hockeyviz.com guy, you know, I, I, before we run out of time, could you tell us the your favorite visualization that you've created from this year's data and kind of what it said and how you thought about creating that visualization? Oh, so my my favorite. I go back and forth. You know, I love all my children equally. <laughs> but my favorite, my favorite right now, because it's playoffs, is uh, is the bracket which shows all the probabilities of all the teams. And, uh, and it gradually simplifies as certain colors eat up, you know, the teams that win, they take over the space from the teams that lose. And uh-huh. so it starts off as this riot of color with all of the teams on the outsides. And then as you look towards the center, you see the probability of each team winning the cup itself. How and, matchup uh, dependent is it? Does literally a team eat up, I'll use your words, eat up the probability of the other team? Or does some of it get distributed because whatever model you're using says, oh, there's different matchups and therefore the probability doesn't get all gobbled up? The, the matchup dependence in hockey I'm discovering is uh, a little bit less than what other sports find for matchups. There's something, you know, every now and again, you get really interesting matchups and the narratives that people talk about, you know, that's good. The, but, but like the, the, for instance, the Rangers matchup with, the, with Tampa, I think is going to be really interesting because both teams have the same strengths, extremely good shooting on their power play and extremely good goaltenders. And those two strengths are both matched up against one another mechanically. 
Oh, just tell me who's going to win that series already. <laughs> I'm from New York, and I have relatives in Tampa. Just tell me who's going to win, Rangers I, or Tampa Bay. Uh, I have the Rangers at 55% for that Oh, my series, gosh, really? Which has got to be the most optimistic on the Rangers of any sort of nerd I trust at all. Well, so talk to us about that, because it's easy to jump on this bandwagon of, oh, the Lightning know how to get it done. They were kind of, you know, under underwhelming in the regular season, but now they've hitting all on all on all pistons. I mean, what, so what is your if those, that's what your numbers say? Like what, what give us a little bit more than that about and help explain the lightning to us, please. So the core of it is, as you say, the the underwhelmingness in the regular season. And and it's just as easy to say, well, you know, the lightning are, are playoff performers. As you say, they won back to back cops. You know, there's clearly no shortage of ability there. But but then, you know, the story of like, well, you know, they're they're underwhelming in the regular season, but they turn it on in the playoffs. We have examples from the Lightning specifically of exactly the inverse of that pattern, where they were dominant three years ago and got swept yep. in the first round of the playoffs. And so and, you know, and we're all masters by because of our human nature at creating those narratives and say, well, you know, they didn't know how to win in the playoffs, but then they learned how to win in the playoffs. <laughs> you know, and this is like and, and there is there is a, like some element of truth to those things just because we exist in time and we we exist through these stories we tell each other well you know what narrative i'm going to be telling next year um the regular season doesn't matter see only one of the two top teams colorado and and uh the Panthers actually made it to the final. So I'll just say, see the regular season. See, that's the narrative. I've got a narrative for next year. Eric, look at, I mean, look at last year. Didn't Montreal come in as a four seed out of, out of four in their pod and make it all the way to the finals. Yep. I mean, the, the hockey is just, I mean, hockey, it must be that the regular season matters less in hockey than any other sport. Speaking of which, weren't the abs more or less the top performing team in the regular season? What do you think is going to happen out West? Give us some storyline or something to pay attention to in the West. They're facing, um, McDavid and the Oilers, of course. And so it's kind of, it should be a fun one. And, and we were all pulling for Shane's flames, but now that the Oilers are through, I'm kind of staying with the, with the Alberta team. I'm kind of pulling for them. So I, I have sympathy with that. Uh, I quite, I mean, it's impossible not to like McDavid, but I'm hoping for Colorado myself in part because they're so well balanced. The, okay. the Oilers are, are the opposite of balanced. Oh, McDavid. you mean across lines. Okay. Yeah, across and, and not just across lines specifically, but across like all aspects of the sport. You know, mm-hmm. their their power play is good. The penalty kill is good. The five on five play is great. The goalie is OK. Good. Like, whereas with Edmonton, <laughs> okay. there are lots of places where where you say, wow, OK, McDavid is tremendous. Uh, that makes the power play tremendous. The finishing talent is tremendous because, again, McDavid and, you know, and also dry sidle. But then, you know, you start looking even just a tiny bit past one, two, maybe three guys. And you're, you know, the skeletons come out of the cupboard really, really fast. Right. And I, I saw some I numbers late, late in that series. I saw some numbers and all the analytics, including advanced analytics, were super positive for McNiven. McDavid was on the ice and were all negative when he wasn't on the ice. I mean, every one of them flipped, even the fancy ones. Yep. Oh, yeah. No, there's no there's no question that the team is constructed around, you know, one, two and a half guys. And and there's something really fun about that. Those guys are are every inch as good as people say they are. But but I really enjoy from a team building perspective, the way that the abs have been built to be really good at everything for years. And that's that's so that's what I like about them. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, um, let us wrap up then. We've kept you a little longer than we meant to. Give us who do you think is going to make it all the way through? We've got four teams standing at the moment. Who would you put your chips on for actually winning the cup? I like Colorado myself for that reason. 
balanced. All right, good. Well, listen, Micah, always a pleasure to talk to you. We strongly recommend your material. Twitter, again, at math or HockeyViz.com. Some crazy cool stuff on HockeyViz.com. Either way, you can see Micah McCurdy's work up there. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Switching gears now to the NBA, the other deep playoff we are into right now. We have a second guest on this quarter. We have Neil Payne on. Neil, long time friend of the show. He's possible. He's like the Steve Martin of Wharton Moneyball. Guest more than anybody else. Neil was there in the beginning. Neil was in person in the beginning before he by the time 538 was launching, we were launching and Neil was in Philadelphia and we got, he, he spent some time with us in that first basement studio. Always a pleasure to see you. Neil's now senior writer at 538, covers a lot of sports. He's got background in a lot of sports. He can talk smack or analytics across a lot of sports. And so it's always fun to see you, Neil. Well, hey, how's it going, guys? Good, 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 good. Um, we wanted to talk a little basketball mid playoffs or here as we roll into the finals. And we thought you'd be a good person to do that with in general, but then also because you're kind of, you know, for us, you're kind of the face of 538 <laughs> and we've been whinging about 538's model for a little while now. I've heard, but, I've heard it. <laughs> well, I've, I've even sent you, you know, like baffled text trying to understand, but. And I sent baffled replies. <laughs> this is true. You weren't exactly going to the mat defending it. I will say this. You guys were long on the Celtics early and that has played out well, but it seems awfully long yet. And, the, <laughs> you know, that once the, 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 the finals matchup was clear, Vegas came in favoring the Warriors. I think the if you want to put it in percentage terms, it's maybe 60, 60% or so Warriors. And you guys are sitting there. What is the number? What is the 538 number on the Celtics to win this thing? I think it's 80-20 for the Celtics right now, yeah. uh, which I do want to go on the record and say that's way too high. Like anytime you're you're that out of step with the betting markets, something is perhaps amiss. And so uh, I think we're going to unpack the model after the season and try to figure out what's what's going on with it. But, you know, I haven't been happy with some of the things that it's had uh, coming out in a while. However, I will go to the mat and defend the Celtic, the idea of the Celtics as some kind of favorites. You guys want to talk about that? Yeah, let's, idea? Do it. let's do it. Yeah. So here's my logic and reasoning behind that. Real real, real quickly, do I remember, I I think you worked for the Hawks at one time. Do I have that right? So you've actually worked for an NBA team. So you're deep on a lot of sports, but maybe one of your deepest is basketball. So let's hear your Celtics go to the mat for the Celtics. Yeah. So, you know, I saw the number you you mentioned the 60% for Vegas, like instantly, you know, installing them as favorites uh, going into the finals. And I just quite I can't quite really figure out the the objective statistical justification for that. So for instance, look at the regular season. Boston had a much better point differential than the Warriors. They were plus 7.3 per game versus plus 5.5 for Golden State. Is it even relevant to talk regular season numbers with the Warriors? It was that. I think it was 5 seconds. 5 seconds or 10 seconds that they and, had to- And is it relevant to look at it over all teams or as opposed to let's say really strong teams? 
Okay, well, I'll get to that in a second. But (laughs) my point, my spiel there is that that's a pretty significant difference. We're talking about two points per game. It's a lot. And it's it's not about strength of schedule either. In fact, the, you know, we kind of have this mental image of, oh, the West is strong and the East is weak from from a few years ago. And that was true for a long time. Actually, Eastern Conference teams went 226 and 224 against the West this year. So that perception, throw it out. uh, It's a thing of the past. So, Yes, I know that there have been a lot of lineup changes, a lot of, you know, evolution for really honestly both teams, uh, if we're being honest. But if you're just looking at the resume during the regular season, you would have to give a pretty significant edge to the Celtics. Now, you might say the NBA has the least meaningful regular season of probably any sport. Why should we even care about that at all? Okay, let's talk about the playoffs then. So during the playoffs... Yes. I would say, I would say the Celtics had this, this the best record, the best resume in the second half of the season. If we had been yes. talking about it. Well, I'm talking way, about overall, so think relevant. about how much better their, their second half is uh, if we're just isolating that, because we know that the bulk of that performance came in the second half. But it, it, just overall even, so toss out, you know, even include the first half. I think that's compelling. Second of all, if we're talking about the uh, the playoffs, the Celtics actually have a better points per game differential in the playoffs than the Warriors do as well. It's a little closer, plus 6.1 versus plus 5.4, but they played a much more difficult schedule. If you think Mm -hmm. about the teams that the Warriors have kind of gone through en route to the NBA Finals, it's not exactly a murderer's row. It was Denver, huge injury problems with that team. You got Memphis. I see uh, Eric has a rebuttal for this coming up. No, I don't. I don't think either one. I like like this. This is argument. Keep going. You're on a roll. Right. I mean, possibly uh, Memphis, they wouldn't have made it past Memphis if Morant hadn't been. Right. Well, John Morant was out, uh, you know, big chunks of that series. They went, they still took him to six games. And then they played Dallas, who I think was pretty overrated. I cannot explain what happened with uh, Phoenix, which, in my opinion, was sort of the team with the best resume to that point, like at the uh-huh. beginning of that series. Uh, and so that counts for something that like Dallas beat them. And then Golden State is like the team that beat the team, if, if you believe that. And they didn't have oh, really yeah. any problem with them. But if you kind of add it all up, the Celtics have played a more difficult schedule in the playoffs and they've done better in terms of uh, point differential. The only area where the Warriors have found another gear is in terms of offense. Their offense really seems to be clicking in the playoffs. Interestingly enough, they only actually ranked 17th in offense and they had a much worse offense than the Celtics did during the regular season. Again, put whatever uh, yeah. you know, grain of salt on that that you want. But my point is, is that if, if, if we're talking about who's the better team in a vacuum, uh, if you've got one team that was clearly better during the regular season, they've also been better against a more difficult schedule in the playoffs. I think that team might just be better if we're talking about on a neutral court. The only things that really sort of tilt things maybe back in the direction of Golden State is, first of all, playoff experience. They have a lot more playoff uh, or they have a lot of playoff experience. Let's talk about that because that number is extreme. I think it's something like that we could – we can, the average we can, player on Golden State weighted by minutes in this postseason had 2,000 previous career postseason minutes, which the only team in the playoff field, which this is kind of worth a chuckle, that had more than that is the Brooklyn Nets. So, again, maybe it's not it? worth as much. But, well, I'm, you know. curious, I'm curious what y'all think. I'm curious what both Neil and Eric think about this stat because the, 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 I think the more peaceful one is something like the Warriors roster has something like 140 finals games experience to zero for the Celtics. Right. But the Celtics have a lot of non-finals playoff experience. We, uh, we should point out. Well, so this is, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, does it, is, is that a thing? 
Is that a thing? <laughs> Honestly, we tested, and I'm, I wonder whether you've looked at it, Eric, but just real quick, I uh, we tested when we we're looking at the effect of um, playoff experience. We tested just overall previous career experience. I don't remember whether we looked at finals specifically. It's an interesting thought that like maybe going to the finals confers some kind of extra, you know, like you've been on this stage before benefit. I don't know if that's true or not. I feel like making the finals is, is categorically different than any other advance. You just, you can see it in the way they react. It's, there's, it's, of course, making the playoffs is one category. Then how far you progress doesn't kind of matter that much until you make the finals. And that's another thing. And it's the same with the Super Bowl. Making the Super Bowl is categorically different than making the cha- the, the, the championship games. Well, you do get uh, the fancy patch on your jersey. <laughs> that's important. Yeah, it's all about that, you know, Western MVP or whatever. Adi Weiner is here jumping in. Yeah. Is there any model for any sport that genuinely puts any weight on prior finals experience? I mean, it sounds like... You wouldn't a, have I, enough data. Like one. as distinct yeah. from the playoffs in general. Well, I even I'll roll back one, as but... distinct from even rolling into the playoffs in general. I mean, is there any magic that that you that experience in that setting brings that you would actually want to change your forecast? That seems to me that I don't know. I'm a skeptic. I think I, I think at the level of distinguishing finals from playoff. I'm pretty sympathetic. I mean, generally, great. I go the null hypothesis. The, the bright analytics play is to go with Audi's null here. But when you're talking about the kinds of discrepancy that these two teams have, it's pretty stark. I, yeah, I but, think I would probably, you know, the first sport, because uh, it's also going on right now as well, I would think that tennis, having been to a finals or winning, winning a major, would all else equal would increase the probability. I would think I wouldn't mind having a starting quarterback in the Super Bowl that's actually won it before. Um, I think, Adi, I think there probably would be an effect, but not nearly as large as anyone yeah, I don't think. I don't think Tom Brady's heart rate changes when he walks out of the Super Bowl stage. And then contrast that with Donovan McNabb, you know, throwing <laughs> up in the huddle. There's some pretty big differences. And this I'm wondering is our Philly-based adjustment that we're just adding <laughs> on specifically. Yeah, yeah, I think right. point, the point you brought up, Neil, I actually didn't realize this until I looked, that the four final teams in the NBA – during the regular season, we're all the top four defensive teams. You know, people say, uh, you know, well, there's the old adage, defense wins championships. People say, oh, no, the NBA's changed. It's all about offense. Well, the Mavericks, the Warriors, the uh, Heat, and the uh, Celtics were the top four defensive teams in terms of points per game and defensive efficiency. That shocked me. Yeah, uh, Celtics and Warriors were actually tied on the number, at least it rounded to uh, one decimal at basketball reference in terms of the best defense. And and I have to think that that's like, I don't know off the top of my head, but that has to be the first time that that's happened. I mean, it's kind of a very specific, uh, you know, you have to hit it on exactly the correct number. Um, but one other thing that I did want to bring up, you know, I mentioned the playoff experience uh, is that also we got to talk about home court. Obviously, Warriors will have home court, although it's funny. They were actually a lower seed within their conference than the Celtics, but they had the better record uh, overall. And there's this number, you know, historically, 72% of the time, the team with home court advantage in the NBA Finals wins the NBA Finals. That would seem to sort of back up that number. You know, if anything, hey, maybe Vegas is underrating uh, the Warriors with that 60% clip. But I looked at this as well, and the majority of that, probably about two thirds of it is just simply because there's 
a huge amount of overlap between having the better team right. and yeah. and uh, which leads to a better record most of the time and then leads right. to being uh, home court most of the time. But if you control for the ELO ratings of the two teams going into the finals and run a logistic regression on that, you find that like two evenly matched teams going into a finals, the team with home court would only be expected to win 57% of the time. To me, that's the true right. home court advantage after right. removing the, the effect of that's highly correlated with having the better team. So if you look at that 60% number in Vegas, it means that they probably think that the Warriors are a slightly better team on a neutral court. But based on all the evidence that I just kind of laid out, I I don't think there's a whole lot of support for the idea that the Warriors are the better team on a neutral court. I think the Celtics are probably the better team. Now it's a question of whether that's enough to offset that seven percentage point difference of the home court. But I don't think it's unreasonable at all to think the Celtics are favorites. I do think it's crazy to think they're 80% favorites. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, that's a whole other story. I think the one thing that'll be interesting is, of course, the Warriors are going to have a long break. What I think they also did, which benefits the Warriors tremendously during the series because of the age of their players, is I didn't realize there's three games in be- three days in between each of the finals games. So for an older team, remember, Steph's not young, Clay Thompson's not young, Draymond Green's not young. So they're key players. Trust me, I think their probability goes up significantly having it being three days between games or most of the games instead of two, which was every other round. That's interesting. And they are more banged up. If you look at like the important players, you know, the Celtics have had injuries as well, but it sounds like, you know, Marcus Smart and Robert Williams, those guys are like good to go for game one. Whereas there's more of a question about like, when will Porter come back? When, you know, is Gary Payton going to be a factor at all? Can he play, you know, any kind of minutes? So it could probably favor to your point, Eric, you know, having those, those off days. It's so spread out now. It's crazy. I don't remember it being that way when I I don't remember it being that way. We're waiting like, you know, days and days between games. Um, You know, Hey, if they want the finals to last into uh, September, October again, (laughs) they could just add like, you know, a month between each game. We're good. It's remarkable. It just, it's you, especially the Celtics coming through the East, what they have to do to get to, I mean, they just, the, the, it's just such a march to get here. Okay. Uh, we have to wrap up, but give us, we've talked a lot about numbers. Give us, you know, you know, the players, you know, the teams, you know, the strategies, give us a storyline or two to pay attention to in the finals. Cause this is going to be a lot of fun, but what, what's something you think we should be paying attention to? Well, I think the big uh, question is whether the Celtics can, clamp down defensively against the Warriors, given what I said, the way they've been playing offensively and the way that like all the pieces just seem to be kind of clicking together. And you have not just Curry, but you have, you know, the guys that benefit from Curry spacing and, and Wiggins, you know, one of my favorite all time players uh, is, uh, you know, ha- having an amazing performance himself. He could have been MVP of that series. Uh, and, and so I think, yeah, the question of whether the Celtics defense, which is, in my opinion, one of the best defenses we've seen just in in the NBA in the last decade or so, uh, you know, some number of, of years can uh, this is like their final exam. Can they really clamp down on on the words and shut down Steph and uh, extend all those questions that that always linger around? Is Steph you know going to be a Finals MVP that type of thing? Neil, take that one level deeper for us and tell us how is it that the Celtics are playing such good defense? And to the to the naive viewers, like, well, they have some very athletic big guys that can be on the perimeter, or maybe it's somehow these guys are busting their tail more, or maybe it's more strategically how they do things. What's your breakdown of why they're such a good defensive unit? 
Well, I think one of the big things is depth. I mean, also this interchangeability and the fact that in one of those games in the in the East final, they were able to you know, compensate for Robert Williams being less effective and, and basically replace him with Grant Williams and not really miss a beat. And, and that to me was emblematic of the way that they just have all these kind of interchangeable parts. Derek White, you know, has been one of the most unheralded players. And obviously, you know, Marcus Smart is the heart and soul of, of, everything that that team does. So I just love the the depth that they have defensively where they can throw so many different lineups at you and there aren't really liabilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that I think separates them from other teams across the league where at least there's like one guy that you can really kind of target and just abuse. And the league is doing that more than ever. I forget where I saw a story. I think it was at the Wall Street Journal where they were talking, or maybe it's the ringer. They were talking about how, you know, Curry uh, is, is obviously, a, you know, one of the most coveted offensive weapons in, in NBA history, but more and more and more, the guy that Curry is guarding is, or the guy that Curry is forced to switch onto is also mm-hmm. the most coveted offensive player in the playoffs because they're just so targeting, you know, if he switches or trying to get matchups onto him. Uh, and that's true of every, you know, offensive superstar that maybe has some defensive uh, shortcomings. Mm-hmm. Super interesting. All right. Well, we are geared up for it. There, this We're recording on Tuesday night. The show goes up tomorrow and then the final start on Thursday. It'd be good fun. Neil, always a pleasure. Thanks for making time for us today. Thanks for having me guys. As always. Neil Payne, senior writer at 538. You can catch him up there for all any number of sports talking with us today about some basketball. That team has been another two hours of Wharton Moneyball. Appreciate you guys listening for the whole team here. Eric Bradlow, who's been here for the whole run. Audie Weiner, who was early and then jumped in again late. For Shane Jensen in absentia. For the boss man, Matty Dats, keeping us all on the straight and narrow. And the associate boss man, Deion Simpkins. Appreciate you guys listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.